I knew soil carbon was, in a sense, the the hub or central node of of the circle of life, at least on land. And I knew that soil carbon was was possible to measure fairly accurately, at least at a at a point. It's difficult to measure soil carbon or soil carbon change over a landscape or even a pasture or a field, but at a at a single location, it's possible to do that fairly accurately. And it was easier than measuring water, or so I thought. I knew that water was the big number one issue everywhere I went. And I, I've done carbon sampling and analysis all over North America. But I did find that um, management probably could make a make a difference, but it was noisy. It was highly variable. Um, and then we had this big push to commodify soil carbon as an offset. And because my interest is in the carbon cycle, I realized that this was not was not right. Welcome to the Real Organic Podcast. I'm Lindley Dixon, co-director of the Real Organic Project. We're a grassroots, farmer-led movement with an add-on organic food label to distinguish organic crops that are grown in healthy soils and organic livestock that is raised on well-managed pasture. You just heard from Peter Donovan. He's the founder of the Soil Carbon Coalition. We caught up with Peter earlier this year to learn more about his position against soil carbon trading offsets and credits. Instead, he advocates for increasing soil carbon primarily for its water holding capacity benefits, arguing that soil carbon sequestration through agricultural practices are too slow to be used as an offset for emissions. Let's dive into the details. Welcome to the Real Organic Podcast. I'm talking today with Peter Donovan. Um, I've known Peter for a number of years now. Uh, I think I first met Peter at a Walter Yana workshop. Uh, Peter has, I'm going to read this, has herded sheep and cattle and worked in the woods and on farms. And since 1996, he's reported on innovative natural resource stewards. Um, In 1990s, he studied holistic management with Alan Savory low-stress livestock handling with Bud Williams, and consensus building with Jeff Goebel and Bob Chadwick. 2007, he founded the Soil Carbon Coalition and shortly afterwards embarked on the Soil Carbon Challenge. So uh, I I look forward to hearing about that. Um, And uh, a longtime resident of Northeast Oregon, uh, do you still live in a school bus? No, I don't. I live in a small house now in La Grande, Oregon. And wonderful. <laughs> Good. I, I've seen that school bus. So tell, can, can you, is, is the soil carbon challenge something that's big in your life right now? Um, no, it's, um, it was a period, it was a chapter in my life. I was motivated by the question of given that life is the most powerful geologic force, and that was realized over a hundred years ago by Vladimir Vernadsky. 
the question to me has been, how can we work with this most powerful force? How can we work with the circle of life instead of what I perceive as for many, many um, centuries and generations, we've tended to work against it. Yes, yes. It, it seems that the force that uh, pushes people to work against it is, is usually economic. Or survival, or the way they think they need to, the way people think they need to survive. And so I started measuring carbon. I knew I knew soil carbon was, in a sense, the the hub or central node of of the circle of life, at least on land. And I knew that soil carbon was was possible to measure fairly accurately, at least at a at a point. It's difficult to measure soil carbon or soil carbon change over a landscape or even a pasture or a field, but at a at a single location, it's possible to do that fairly accurately. And it was easier than measuring water, or so I thought. I knew that water was the big number one issue everywhere I went. And I, I've done carbon sampling and analysis all over North America, hundreds of places. And, but I did find that um, management probably could make a, make a difference, but it was noisy, it was highly variable. Um, and then we had this big push to commodify soil carbon as an offset. And because my interest is in the carbon cycle, I realized that this was not, was not right. And that's one of the reasons why I've backed off of the soil carbon challenge work. Because the perception of, of carbon is that it, soil carbon is that it's some kind of offset to fossil fuel emissions. And if you look at the way the carbon cycle works, and I'm going to show a picture here, Dave, if that's okay. Sure. Um, can, I, can I share my screen? Sure. Okay, this is a, this is a, pic, a very simplified picture of the carbon cycle. And on the left, we have lithospheric carbon going into the atmosphere, mainly as carbon dioxide from volcanoes and also from fossil fuel burning. And and I'm sorry, Peter, but just to slow it down, lithosphere means the crust of the earth. Okay, thank you. From the from the crust of the earth. Yeah. And then we have the two major flows loop or loops of, of carbon carbon flow. On land we have photosynthesis by plants taking CO2 out of the atmosphere and then respiration returning it back. And this is a very complex thing with um, heavy involvement by, of course, photosynthesizers and microbes. And there's a lot we don't know about that. Or there's a huge variation in what people know and understand about that. But that's the basics of the process. The plants take in the carbon. It finds its way into the soil. 
and microbes um, do a lot of the respiration and of course fire and um, you know even our breath returns this carbon to the atmosphere most of this carbon to the atmosphere yes and then the other major loop is the solubility into the ocean and this is this is uh, mediated by henry's law of 1803 which states that the partial pressure of a gas above the liquid equilibrates with its dissolved concentration and to put that in in simple terms for most people if we have a if we have a carbonated beverage we know we can we can carbonate that beverage by pumping co2 into the air above it and increasing the pressure of co2 we can generate a carbonated beverage but if we leave our glass of beer out on the counter the the carbon will move back into the atmosphere the beer will go flat because there's not a very high concentration of carbon dioxide in the in the air above the beer compared to its dissolved concentration so if we were able to take um atmospheric CO2 into plants, trees, or rocks, or soil, an almost equivalent amount would probably off-gas from the ocean. And this, this is, um, this is a, a known fact of physical chemistry, and there's mediating factors. It's, it's complex. Again, the ocean is full of microbes, many of them photosynthesizers. And there's a lot of complexity there that we don't understand. But the basics of the physical chemistry is that the solubility of carbon dioxide depends on the concentration both of carbon dioxide in seawater and in the air. And so what this means is that the idea of carbon sequestration in soils is not a subtraction from the atmospheric pool, really because the atmospheric pool is of, of CO2 is connected to the oceanic pool. And there's more carbon dioxide dissolved in the ocean than there is on, in soils and plants and in the atmosphere altogether. And there's a huge amount in there. And this is this has largely been ignored by many people and because carbon sequestration is considered to be uh, something we can sell. Instead, and this, this carbon cycle of circled life is then is nested within much larger flows of solar energy, of, of, of the, the energy that warms our planet, that creates winds and currents, of the huge energy of the water cycle. And the carbon cycle, by contrast, uses just a pinhole's worth of sunlight, if you will, but it has transformative powers because it does a lots of chemistry. And I'm not saying that soil carbon is worthless here. Um, it has huge use value because it, it helps enable soils to accept and hold water. That's the big deal. Yeah. Can I, can I ask a question here, Peter? Um, basically, you're describing a system, as I understand it, with the, with the ocean and the atmosphere and the plants and the soil, in which it's very hard to change the concentration of CO2 because the ocean will adapt to, to maintain an equilibrium. But uh, we have increased the CO2 in the air 
you know, through a lot of burning of fossil fuel. So uh, at least in the wrong way, it seems it is possible to to change that that balance. Did I get that right? It is. It, it probably is possible, but the idea of drawdown or sequestration as a near-term subtraction of of atmospheric carbon dioxide is not is not a thing. Okay, Be- because the ocean will simply adjust the CO two level. But right. what what is a thing is to get. Um, more carbon, more organic matter in the soil, which will change the water cycle. I get that right? Yes. Okay. Can you, yes. can you talk with me about why the water cycle, why that is so critical? Because it's the major factor that um, enables us to eat. In the carbon cycle, photosynthesis, soil carbon, they have a critical impact on, on water cycling and the soil stability, soil aggregation. But it's, it's the water that grows our crops. Does this also have a lot to do with cooling and heating on the planet? Yes. And you've been to Walter Yena's um, workshops. There's a tremendous amount there and it's, it's very complex and there's lots of factors. But the water cycle is is the elephant. The carbon cycle is the mouse that that controls the elephant, if you will. Yeah, helps helps buffer the enormous power of water cycling, which we see and we saw recently in Pakistan and again in in many places around the around the world. The, the increase in intensity of the water cycle is a huge, is a, is a civilization crashing phenomenon. Both in terms of, of increasing deserts, but then also on the other side, these Noah's Ark floods. Right. Yeah. So we, we get these wild swings in the water cycle and it, it wreaks havoc on, on certainly on humans and on many other mammals as well. Yeah. And the importance of soil carbon is that it can buff, help buffer that that um, potentially very destructive water cycle. Yes. And as it does buffer that, then it helps to also moderate the temperatures. Yes. Okay. This is, you know, this, this is uh, a little bit deeper dive into climate science. So thank you. And there's another way that we look at the carbon cycle. And this is um, the simplified version where we have a simple balance measured in CO2 tons. And we have emissions on one side and so-called sequestration or drawdown on the other. Yes. And this makes this, this model or mental model of carbon cycling is, is quite popular and it makes markets almost self-evident. Mm. Makes the market solution almost self-evident. Given that with our governments, we can't seem to, to put a limit on fossil fuel burning or, or reduce its, reduce fossil fuel burning. Therefore, as Maggie Thatcher said, there is no alternative. 
We need markets. Yeah. And that's the sort of the neoliberal discourse that many of us have been formed by, particularly the younger generations. Now, now, Peter, uh, there's a lot of talk about, let's say, fraud in the carbon markets. And we, we'll talk about that. But you're mm -hmm. saying, if I understand it right, that even in a legitimate carbon market in which you are paying for practices on land that actually is increasing the photosynthesis of that land, that that's not sequestering more carbon, that's that's not going to make a difference? In, 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 well, you know, it, why is this model wrong? Because it ignores the ocean, for one thing. It ignores the, the complexity of the various microbial interactions that, that occur in different places on land and in different places in the sea. And it simplifies the, the carbon cycle to something that, that we, we can see as a problem from the somewhat mysterious and very complex relationships and processes of the actual carbon cycle, this model gives us a path to a solution. I think it's a false path, but um, it appears to give us a path to a solution. In other words, we can, we can not only gain a return, we can appear to solve a problem and appear to do good with this model. You see that? Yes, I see that. And, and and I would add that I believe that many of the people participating in this are not doing it cynically. They believe in the model. Yeah. They believe that they're doing good. So just, you know, it's it's very easy to kind of point a finger and, and say, well, Cargill doesn't care, whatever. But but my point mm -hmm. is that many, many people who do care, people of of uh great generosity of heart believe in this model as well. And you're saying, you know, that they're misled. Yeah, and it's it's yeah. There there are many well-intentioned people who um, have been persuaded to ask what I sense it, what I what I call the wrong question. How can we sequester carbon? And and what is the right question? How can we work with the circle of life in all of its variability and complexity? Okay, that's the question that I that motivates me, and it's it's a it's a complex, scary one, and there is no simple answer. No simple answer. Peter, can you give me an example of something that is clearly not a solution, but that is seen as a solution, and then is something that you yourself would see as a solution? I mean, it's. It's I, it, it's wonderful to say to work with the circle of life, but what would that look like? So first, what what does it look like to sequester carbon in a way that is not working with the circle of life? Well, you know, for example, people ask me sometimes because I'm considered some sort of expert on on soil carbon, which I'm not, and they ask me what's what's the best way to get more carbon into the ground. And what I tell that what I routinely answer is, well, what I'd suggest is disking ten tons of soil, soil of excuse me, disking ten tons of coal dust per acre. <laughs> that will increase your carbon. 
Yes. But it does very little for the circle of life, if you will. Yeah. And, if and that that's, um, but don't get me wrong, soil organic carbon is wonderful stuff. It, it enables soil aggregation, enables the soil to accept and hold water to a much greater extent. But it's not a linear thing. It's not a simple thing. And by working with the circle of life, I mean, we get actual feedback on what's happening. And this is difficult because we're not we're used to just proceeding with the favored solution and not paying attention to the results. And the results might include economic factors, you know, production per unit of input, for example, or in the arid west, for example, per inch of rain. That's 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 one. How well does your soil accept and hold water? Those are very good questions. And are you achieving change over time with whatever you're doing? And management of complexity, as we know, is adaptive. Needs feedback. Needs high quality feedback. And the people that I know who have done the most with this are all self-motivated. They're not typically externally motivated by some sort of payment or incentive. Yes. And that's why um, so many of our federal programs or the whole idea of climate smart agriculture, I think, is a, is a sham. And I would say that carbon sequestration or carbon markets is a shell game because we don't know whether the carbon is in the air or the sea or the land. And it's it's a scam on several levels because there is so much fraud there's so much incentive for fraud and it's uh, not usually very well measured or tracked so um and and it, as i as i listen to you i i hear that the as the way the problem would present say a vegetable farmer in New England it would be quite different from how it would present to a grain farmer in Montana, where in Montana they they really have no water, and uh, the little water they get is is hugely precious. And in New England, typically we have abundant water, and um, it's just a different a different problem. We all we all face consequences of climate change. That's that's going to affect everyone. It will be most most painful in dry in dry areas, most immediately mm-hmm. painful. Then everybody in dry areas will try and go where it isn't so dry and everyone gets to share the problem. Um, do you think, uh, I, I hear what you say, that the people who are working on genuine solutions, by and large, are not motivated by a financial program. They're, they're motivated by a vision of doing things better, of being more in tune with the circle of life. What what would that look like to do something? And I don't care. You could choose, you could choose New England or you could choose Montana. What would it look like to to farm in a way that was more in um, in in 
sympathy and conjunction and in alliance with the with the circle of life? Well, in Montana, for example, it would probably lean toward diverse perennial pastures. Okay. And again, lean toward the, the management of those that promote diversity, that promote good growth. Um, and sometimes a little higher stock density than a lot of people use and maybe longer recovery periods. Mm -hmm. For example, that's what it would mm -hmm. might look like in, in Montana. And what might it look like in, in New England, in, in your opinion? Well, again, um, diverse perennial pastures that, you know, that's not, that's not, for example, historically what Vermont had, but um, food farms in the forest might be one example, and diverse perennial pastures with value-added production like um, Butterworks Farm, for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, in both cases, you've described livestock farms. Mm -hmm. Some people like to eat bread and and broccoli yeah. too. <laughs> is that is that part of a vision? Yeah, and you know, obviously, some there's many people who are growing vegetables and grains in, in ways that are far more friendly than, than huge monocultures that we see in the, in the Midwest, for example. But I don't, I don't get mixed up with labels because even labeling a practice is, is problematic. You know, what is grazing? What is no-till? Sometimes it's easier to say what it's not. Or something if we want to apply a label but in general i i try to avoid the minefield of labels yes yes i i i just will say that in my opinion the real organic project is actually not about building a label it's about building a movement and uh there are many farms that i greatly respect who are not certified with us or with anybody and uh, i still respect them and they're of course, farms that are certified with the USDA as organic that I do not respect. So, you know, I, I agree that, I mean, I think that there's a there's a need for, for labels in the world because most people don't know their farmers, but uh, yeah, it's it's complicated, just like everything, it's complicated. So I'm, I'm more interested right now in figuring out what is it we, what kind of farming do we want? And then, you know, one of the things that, in the in the drawing of the of the uh, teeter totter of emissions and and sequestration and drawdown, um, and you're saying that you know ultimately this is uh, this is not a, a real solution that this this model which is now becoming hugely funded by our government and taking mm -hmm. our tax money to pump billions of dollars into this model. And I will say that I think most of that money is being spent fraudulently. It's not even real sequestration and drawdown, but that's a different 
different conversation. But I think that people, citizens, are very confused about what is it that we want to encourage. You know, is it possible for our government to help move us towards this solution? One of the things I've seen with, uh, oh, you know, regenerative agriculture, just for example, started, at, well, so did organic as a small farmer movement. And and right now, it's a, regenerative has exploded into becoming a corporate movement. And I think people are genuinely confused. Well, do we want to try and get these huge corporations to try and do better because they have such huge influence over what happens next? And, you know, I have my opinion and, and everyone has their opinion. But what do you think? What what should we as citizens be working towards? What what do we go? This is a solution that we think will lead to a, a, the outcome that we want. Well, with with federal policy, it's it's I think it's it's very difficult. I haven't been very involved in in any kind of federal policy movements or, or nonprofit is um, not really focused on that. There there are quite a few that do, but the the limitations of federal policy are huge um, because, as I said, most of the people who really want to um, farm with nature, work with the carbon cycle and so forth are self-motivated. And often if we apply an external motivation that can, that can become a perverse incentive or is easily gained or something that, that we know, know like that, especially if you, if you pin the program to practices rather than um, outcomes or results, because practices vary enormously, depending, and we we think that you know no-till is one thing or grazing is one thing, and and no, it's not. When you get out and actually see what people are doing, it's it's incredibly varied. Yeah. But the biggest low-hanging fruit for federal policy, I think, is to um, dispense with certain policies that are against the against working with nature. For example, let's drop crop insurance, or let's let's drop climate smart agriculture or the whole net zero thing, or any of that. There's many organizations that have been claiming this for a long time, in particular, the Indigenous Environmental Network. Um, in Out of Bemidji, Minnesota. They've got some great resources on, on how climate-smart agriculture is, a, is an appendage of its colonialism 3.0 or something like that. It's mm -hmm. it's um, hierarchical, hegemonic, however you want to call it. Um, so the, that's that's the opportunity with federal policies to eliminate perverse incentives, and I think that's that's going to be difficult to do without without a mass popular movement. Yes, and it's it's. <laughs> It's a challenge to get a mass popular movement because uh, 
I think you described um, um, data as being very noisy, and um, I'd like to hear you talk about that. But what I've seen is that the conversations are very noisy. And um, I mean, climate, climate smart agriculture is a perfect example. Gosh, that sounds good. You know, I'd like to see an agriculture that was climate smart, meaning apparently that it was an agriculture that was going to move towards healing a wound and repairing a cycle that is being uh, degraded and, and degenerated. And yet that doesn't appear to be what climate smart means, is it? They always choose words that sound so good and aren't so good. Well, this is part of the, you know, it's part of a broader policy where, where, um, you know, Vilsack and the USDA and the Iowa Axis and Monsanto and Bayer and everything, they want more private investment in in agriculture, which, as you know, goes goes mainly to the input sector when it when it occurs. And they want government to de-risk it in the same way that um, Daniela Gabor with her paper, The Wall Street Con Consensus, a lot of big green and you know, the Nature Conservancy, the the World Wildlife Fund, they, they tend to want to play along with this. And let's use government to de-risk the entry of private capital into various markets like carbon markets. And the USDA wants to standardize those, wants to increase the quality and so forth to what is basically a shell game. So do you believe that 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 um that the carbon markets as such are unsalvageable it's like that's really not the way to go I do believe that yeah because because it's it's fundamentally a deception that we can reduce atmospheric CO2 by drawdown or sequestration and as you know, it, it excuses the continue the continued high level of emissions. And but this is again not to say that that more soil carbon isn't a very good thing for the people who live on the land. It has high use value. But the exchange value that we're putting on it via these markets is is uh, is fraudulent, I think. Yeah, yeah. And the when you're trying to sell a partially imaginary exchange value, it requires complicated packaging. <laughs> okay. <Yeah. laughs> um, it, one of the things I think it was Elliot Coleman who said, uh, you know, somewhere in all this, everyone seemed to forget that agriculture was actually about growing food and, uh, you know, so uh, agriculture is coming to be depicted uh, as a way of sequestering carbon and that that's the purpose of it. And of mm -hmm. course, whether it does or not is a whole different question. Um, you said that, that uh, you know, it's important to measure results, not just to um, reward a system of farming, but to measure the results and reward that. But I, I've also basically heard you say the results are very hard to measure, I, you know, that you can measure it in one spot over time, but 
you know, you move 10 feet over and, and things get very different and you move six inches deeper and things get very different. So tell me, tell me about that. Well, I believe the policy opportunity for, to go back to your policy question, the policy opportunity is to, is for local movements, not national ones. I think there's, there's a, a, a necessary um, national or international connection there, but the the primary activity has to be local because that's where the variation is. That's where the adaptability is. That's where the human relationships are. That's where there's some, there's a better, much better um, chance of building trust and building um, or growing feedback loops, you know, result about outcomes and results that are very relevant to the people working on that land. And that's, you know your your level your level of of soil organic matter or carbon or something like that might be an, a sort of a national standard but that's meaningless as we know there's you know if you're farming on peat soils in california delta versus um sand in new mexico or something like that a very very different type of operation and the, these results, these outcomes have to be have to be relevant locally. And I don't think they can be standardized across the whole country or anything like that. Which makes um, top down policy problematic for for soils problematic. Yes. Or labels or or practice or specification practices problematic. Yeah. Because we're in a, we're in a very we're complex, highly variable systems where we don't understand everything. So here we get to Al Gore's statement that it's important to change the light bulbs, but it's more important to change the laws. And um, I think that that you know the purpose of that is to say that there's tremendous leverage in making a, a a systemic change and i've heard the same thing about uh people talking about in racial justice it's it's very nice to have neighbors who um don't hate you because of the color of your skin but what we'd really like to do is change the economic opportunities for people so that they can thrive and survive and thrive and those those barriers are often institutional and not personal and I'm just curious because I, I I hear what you're saying and, and I agree and I look around and the solutions I see are actually coming from people I can name rather than from government organizations or large national outfits. But how do we how do we wrap our heads around that? I mean, you know, I know that you're you're someone who's working very hard on a vision of a of a better agriculture, better for everybody, you know, that that's something that will uh, sustain the land, sustain the people. How do you uh, how do we move forward? Is it is it um, do we surrender uh, the big ship to the pirates and we say we're going to go off in the lifeboats? How do you think about that? Well, as I mentioned, I think I think um in terms of federal policy, soils are a big, uh, a, a difficult thing to deal with. And the 
but we could do some very good things if we had a mass popular movement to dispense with crop insurance, to dispense with climate smart agriculture, for example, these national standards. Um, the, you know, the Vermont Working Group recently um, came up with a recommendation that the state of Vermont enhance the conservation stewardship program, make it easier and better. That's 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 a step in the right direction, I think. But the real step is locally, which is not a federal policy for soils. However, to control emissions, I do think I do, I do think federal action is 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 necessary. And again, that needs to be a mass popular movement. Yeah. Well, but to to husband our soils is is a local a local task. It's it's gotten complicated where where uh, I th I think we're down to maybe two percent of Americans are farmers, and uh, the other ninety percent are presumably eating food grown by those two percent. Um, so most people are fairly fairly removed from from how their food is grown. Somehow we need to build a, a an alliance between eaters and farmers, and even on a local level, that's not easy. We know that uh, Vermont, which is is relatively uh, a, a glorious model of organic agriculture in America, and yet uh, I don't know what percentage of the food eaten in Vermont is grown in Vermont, but it's very small. Mm -hmm. So if we're looking at systemic change, it's we have a long way to go. Can I ask you, you know, you consider kind of one of the top priorities uh, on a federal level to to drop climate smart agriculture. And they just got awarded three point one billion dollars. Um, and I know one one person who is a, a a big advocate in this, and I'm sure they got a little bit of that three point one billion. But they're they're uh, an organic uh, nonprofit, and they said, "Well, we don't we don't support where all that money went, but we do support at least the government is now talking about soil health and and the relationship between climate and agriculture." Do you think there's any truth to that? Or I know that, for example, in, in soil health, 20 years ago, I would say the only people talking about soil health were people in the organic movement. And, you know, that that started back in the 1930s, I think, talking about living soil. And now it's become a standard talking point for Bear Monsanto and Syngenta. And, and we go, gracious, what's going on here? So... Clearly, those those forces have have occupied the climate smart agriculture movement, which they, to some degree, invented. Um, what do we do about that? Do we need a, a, a cry of outrage about how this money is being spent? I don't know. Um, it would be it would be interesting to see how it is being spent. And I think people in various levels have some leverage on this. I think uh, the, res 
I think many of the recipients of the Climate Smart Commodities money already are being steered away from their some of the sometimes their primary purposes to meet the deliverables of these of these grants. You know, again, focus on greenhouse gases and of which water vapor is not considered to be one of them. Mm-hmm. And as, as we know, it's the greatest greenhouse gas in terms of its heat trapping effects. But no, we, we our, our culture is one of solutioneering. typically around the wrong questions. And this question is how can we enlist agriculture into a market system that rewards the false idea of carbon sequestration? And it might have some good effects. Some people who who might be treating their soil a little better if they get some of this money. I'm not saying that it's bad in all cases. But I think there's far better ways to to do this. And I think conservation districts potentially could have a much bigger role in the United States because they're local or at least have got the, the basics of democracy. And as FDR wrote in the, in the letter to the governors in 1937, in which he said, the nation that destroys its soil destroys itself. He also said that this idea of conservation districts is imperative because it will enable farmers to cooperate. Yeah. yeah. And that that um, task, I think, has, has been abandoned by many soil and water conservation districts across the country in favor of administering federal programs or other federal programs and stuff, but to pay attention to our soil and water and to enable farmers and citizens to cooperate, to create deep topsoil watersheds is, is still available. Okay. Um, and the, and the federal government could help by that, in part by getting out of the way. Yeah. Yeah. With the, these huge amounts of money that will probably be a end up being a perverse incentive for working with the circle of life. Yeah. Yeah. Peter, could I ask you a couple questions? Uh, I've heard uh, from people I I respect two fairly different versions of um, how much of the products of photosynthesis are exuded through the roots into the soil and and used as uh, something exchanged with with the life in the soil in exchange for minerals and um, one one person whom I um, look on as a teacher has said 30 to 50% of the products of photosynthesis are, are um, exuded out of the roots. And another person whom I greatly respect said it's one to 3%. And then if a plant was exuding 30 to 50%, you would create a, a 
a zone around the roots in which there was no no oxygen left, it would kill everything. So I'm curious, do you have an opinion on that from, from your research and your understanding? Um, no, I don't. Um, and we typically regard, we typically take um, various assessments or measurements um, that are done once or twice in certain places to apply to the whole world. And as far as I know, that's not the way the carbon cycle works. That, that which is not the way the carbon cycle works. Right. In other words, that one measurement in the southwest corner of North Dakota yeah. is not going not gonna to be true for everything. Right, right, right. And the, the best way I know of to do this is to use infiltration rings and time the an amount of time it takes for, say, an inch of water to soak into the soil inside a confined infiltration ring that's driven into the soil partway. Mm -hmm. And to do that a foot away or two feet away or six feet away and stuff, and you, people, people understand the variability there as in a hands-on way. Yes. And, and, and what would be an example of what you might learn from that? That um, all sorts of things might make a difference. There's this clump of bunch grass here. There's this cow pie with all sorts of um, organisms working underneath of it, create macro pores that allow water infiltration. There's these different plants that grow here, or there's this different kind of soil cover or different kind of um, history. And the, the one thing that I've learned is that it's very variable. The variability is extremely high. Uh -huh. And that it's, it's like, uh, I hear people saying, oh, my farm is such and such, it's three, is 4% organic matter. And, you know, that's like saying, to me, that's like saying that the, the pH of an aircraft carrier is six and a half. That if you if you grind up the whole thing and tested it, it would be this, and that's just not the not the way it. I think we I think the system works. So it's it's very likely that somebody has done an assessment and measured one to three percent of exudates going into the soil. Another thirty to fifty, they could both be right. Uh huh. Is it would typically would a, a most of the organic matter that is a result of the photosynthesis would that be stored as plant matter or would that be stored as microbes living in the soil? I mean, you know, the the plant itself is is doing most of the photosynthesis. I guess there are microbes that will also photosynthesize. Yeah, I don't. I, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. That's there's, there's a lot of mystery in this area here. The microbes, yeah. And there's you know, some some of the dissolved carbon will go into the sea from rivers and so forth. Yeah. Some of the 
carbon in the ocean will be deposited as sediments in terms of you know shells or tests of small organisms that will eventually move into the lithospheric carbon cycle and so forth there's a lot of complexity here and it's but we we want a solution here you know we want we we would much prefer this picture to work with because that fits our fits yeah. our programs fits our mentality um fits our sense of doing good our ability to do good um but it this this is is um will probably not help us learn to manage complexity yeah you know as oliver wendell holmes supposedly said I would not give a fig for the simplicity on the near side of complexity, but I would give my right arm for the simplicity on the far side of complexity. Yes. Yeah. And I think this is still on the near side here. Yeah. Yeah. But we are paying um, billions of dollars for it, as you mentioned. We're devoting billions of dollars to making this market smoother and, and less wrinkly. Yes. So your 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 suggestion, your proposal, your advice to uh, both farmers and eaters who are concerned and who who understand that certainly we do face a problem as a result of our choices and our I mean by humans' choices over the last whatever five hundred years and those choices are getting more and more amped up. That that. There are actions that would be helpful, but um, a massive uh, carbon credit program is not one of them. Right. And the climate so, smart agriculture movement is not one of them. Yeah. Soil carbon has tremendous value to all sectors of society. But helping to remove atmospheric carbon dioxide is not one of them yeah yeah or to or to um offset emissions is not one of them right the, the first thing with emissions is to stop making them and <laughs> yeah yeah um Peter, another thing that that I hear and it's confusing to me is some people talk a lot about moving soil towards fungal dominance, and um, other soil mycologists say that's crazy talk. And uh, you know, there's 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 fungi in tilled soil, there's fungi in non-tilled soil. They're different species. Uh, you know that there's a lot. It's a lot more complicated than that. I'm just curious. Do you go well, what's your response to that 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 claim that when you move a soil towards fungal dominance, you're you're creating something that is going to be more healthy and pr produce crops that are provide greater health for those that eat them? Yeah, I don't, I've I've also heard a lot about that, and I've you know I've I've seen run various analyses on on you know PLFA or the microbiometer kind of biological tests and sometimes I don't see a, a very much of a correlation between the 
production I see above the ground and what's, what the soil analysis tells me below the ground. But I, I'm sort of agnostic about that. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of very expensive tests that people run that I'm not sure what they show or what, what value they are to the, to the farmer or rancher. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's a huge business in various inoculants now. And I'm not saying I'm against that, but, you know, try something, but make sure it's a safe to fail trial. Yeah. 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 And see, see what results you can detect. We, we, uh, I interviewed uh, farmers who are working with Chico State and Davis on, this is organic low-till um, out in California. And uh, it's not no-till, it's vegetable farming. And what they've done is, is they're on a bed system and they'll flail the bed, they'll flail the cover crop, and then they'll, they'll use this to open up a 10-inch um, basically tilled bed in the middle of it and the rest of the soil is undisturbed and they'll plant in that and the outcome has been uh, surprising and for the farmers doing it disappointing they they saw a, 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 about approximately a 10 percent reduction in yield and these are people who are very good at at keeping records uh, a lot better than a lot of us and and mm -hmm. you know so they and they toured me around and these were fairly large trials I mean, you know, many, many acres of trials. And indeed, you could see in the uh, low till that the crop was uh, less verdant and uh, less luxurious than in the one where they had tilled the full bed. And I said, why is that? <laughs> you know, it just it actually didn't make any logical sense to me. And they said, we, th we think that in our dry climate, when we flail the, the green manure, it just sits on the surface and it doesn't break down very quickly. Whereas when we till it in, it provides the fertility for the next crop. And I thought, well, isn't that interesting? And, um, you know, it's it, I haven't seen the results from Chico yet. It's possible that the that the full till actually has higher soil organic matter than the than the low till, um, because they're incorporating that organic matter and it it breaks down. I've certainly heard of farms out there that have higher organic matter in their growing fields than they do in their windrows in the in the fence rows where the soil's never disturbed. So I'm I'm rethinking a lot of things here and I'm trying to kind of wrap my head around it. I'm curious if you have any thoughts about that. No, I, th I think it's I think it's great that people try things and and keep tabs on the results and and chew those over for you know, at least a period of several years and you know I know the full belly farms so I know the people there that they're, they're doing that and and likewise Brian and Scott Park and and uh, that's who I'm talking about yeah and Phil Foster yeah Phil Foster yeah yeah great farmers great farmers yes. Yes, great farmers, and they they have the interest to learn from what they're doing. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's a great thing. Yeah, it's a gift for all of us to see yeah. what happens when somebody who's, you know, one of the problems with a lot of government the government tests is that uh, I don't trust the people running the tests. I don't mean that they're lying. I just mean that they don't necessarily know how to farm, 
And I certainly trust these people that they're excellent farmers. And so the tests are pretty meaningful. Yeah. Peter, before we go, I'm, I'm curious, one of the things that gets thrown in my face occasionally is that article in Nature back in the day that said that organic farming is, is, of course, worse for the climate than chemical farming because it has a lower yield per acre. And as a result, um, you have to have more acres. And as a result, that's taking land out of forest. And there's something about that that seems so perverse to me. <laughs> I, you know, I just, I know what's involved in chemical farming and it's not a good thing. And, uh, you know, I, I, there's something wrong in the thinking there to me. And one of the things, of course, is that a lot of, a lot of uh, organic farming, the fertility is based on growing the fertility. And so the green manure is, is not producing a crop, but it's counted as part of the cropland. So it makes it look like it's less efficient per acre because they're growing their fertility there. you have any thoughts about that? Well, well I might step stay back a, a little bit with um, one, of the, one of the questions, you know, as humans, we're addicted to judgment. We're committed to judgment. We judge ourselves. We judge other people. We judge um, species. We judge practices as good or bad. And maybe if you're a 40-year Buddhist monk or something, you can get beyond that. But um, most of us are still trapped in the, the need for judgment because we're social creatures. But we can add a question to the judgment question. For example, um, we often ask, is, is something good or bad? In, in my county in Northeast Oregon, in the 1920s, wolves were bad and cows were good. In the 1990s, there was a, a certain population who thought the opposite, that wolves were good and cows were bad. And we've had these flip-flops, too, about dietary fat, about, you know, various various um, health things. Coffee or alcohol is good or bad for you, good, bad, good, bad, good, bad, if you want to follow the news on that. But... Probably a better question in this case is how does it function in the larger system or the larger context? And that's a learning question that we can add to the judgment question. But often we just stop at judgment. We don't want to find out actually how something works. And that's where the feedback loop comes in. And likewise, we ask the question, am I doing the right thing or is this organization or is the federal government doing the right thing? And a better question might be, um, what are the results they're getting? You know, if we really want to manage complexity, we need to pay attention to results and how things function in larger systems. And that's why I point to the larger view of the carbon cycle that is nested within the and our, our self-awareness and consciousness are part of that. We're, those those faculties are driven by the energy from photosynthesis. We're looking at the carbon cycle from inside it, if you will. Looking at the water cycle from inside it. And so I think rather than trying to say that this or that is good or bad, how does it function in the system? 
what are the results we're getting? And those are hard questions. They require evidence that's relevant and, and timely and appropriate. And we don't always get those. Yes. Yeah. Peter, we, we should end. Is there any last thing you would like to say? No. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Peter Donovan, thank you so much. It's it's uh, really been a privilege to talk to you about this stuff, and I, I will be thinking about it for a while. So thank you for talking today. Thank you for listening to The Real Organic Podcast. We are so grateful to those of you who subscribe and Share the link with your friends who want to learn more about good food, the food system, and all the issues that we discuss. As always, a video version of this interview is found at realorganicproject.org and by following our YouTube channel. Please join us next time when our guest will be farmer Mark Kimball and his wife and author, Kristen Kimball, author of one of my favorite books, The Dirty Life. They operate Essex Farm in upstate New York, and Kristen is going to be a speaker at our upcoming in-person Churchtown Dairy Conference on October 14th in Hudson, New York. Tickets are on sale on our website. We hope to see you there.